Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickinson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to the Merrill Memo podcast. I'm Mark Barnes and I'm catching up again with Mayor of Dubbo Regional Council, Matt Dickerson, on what's been happening in and around our beautiful region. Hello, Matt. Hey, Mark. Good to be chatting to you again. Thanks for coming along and having a chat. It's always exciting what's happening around the region and good to be chatting about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Matt, uh, last Friday night, the Dubbo Rhino Awards. So we might start off with those. I'm How a, was the night? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the rhinos. I think the Dubbo Chamber of Commerce does an, an absolutely fantastic job. And what was fascinating this time was that everyone in the room was actually a finalist. Now, it sounds normal that you've got some finalists in the room, but they put out ticket sales to finalists first so that they right. had all the people that potentially were going to win an award. And then normally after they put those ticket sales out, they go out to the general public. Yep. There were so many people excited to be there and so many finalists that wanted to bring a whole table along that they didn't actually put out sales to the general public. Oh, wow. They were completely sold out just from the finalists. So That's that brilliant. was really a good vote of confidence yeah. from the Chamber of Commerce's perspective. Uh, 26th Rhino, so that's pretty impressive they've been going for that long. That's huge. Joanna Griggs was there as the host, so that's pretty exciting to have that sort of talent there in terms of someone to host it. But just the people there, the, the businesses there, talking mm. to businesses on the night, you get a real feeling that Dubbo is absolutely booming. Wonderful. Those businesses are going well. There was a huge amount of confidence in the room. Obviously, these businesses were the best of the best. They yes. were the finalists in the room. But there was that real feeling of confidence in the room. So the Chamber of Commerce does a great job there. Erin Williamson, the chair or the, the president of the Chamber of Commerce, does a great job. Uh, Britt's the executive officer. She did a fantastic job. A huge amount of organisation there. Yeah. But, yeah, just a really good feeling of confidence there and it was another fantastic night. Brilliant. So... Obviously, the question everyone wants to know is, who won the big award? Yeah, Skin Corrective Centre. Skin Corrective Centre. That's right. And they've uh, been around there for a while. They've won a few silver rhinos over the years. I've actually seen them up on stage a few times, and I've heard a lot about them. I've never used them. I've never been a client there, but I've heard about them, and they do seem to run a fantastic mm. business. But to hear about them last night as the gold rhino winner, fantastic. And the other one that people are always interested in is the Email Sericia Award, which is that contribution yes, to Dubbo, yes. and last night it was given to a family, the Fernie family, so oh, wow. John yeah. Fernie, Di Fernie, and yep. then two of their children, Tim and Sarah, they have been running the Ben Fernie flour mills yes. there for a long time, and a real contributor to Dubbo in terms of employment, and what it does for Dubbo, in terms of that export market, they're producing flour in Dubbo and going all across the nation, mm. so great to keep that money flowing into Dubbo. Another great Dubbo success story, or the yeah. Dubbo region success story, isn't Absolutely it? Absolutely right. Oh, that's fantastic, mate. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear you had a great night, and... Congratulations to all the award recipients, I suggest, as well, which is wonderful to say. Now, obviously, Matt, look, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've really struggled, haven't we, with the floods and uh, the consistent rainfall. Can you sort of tell our listeners, how's that impacted us as a region? There's been a few things there. One of the things, obviously, is in terms of our road infrastructure. And this hasn't been just over the last week or month. This has been over the last few years when, obviously, we had a terrible drought up to 2019 mm. or to the end of 2019 there. If you're a road engineer, you love droughts because... Mm. Dry roads and dry or no rainfall around means that your roads stay in better condition. When you get rain, there's a couple of things that happen. If you get just a little tiny crack in a road, which roads do get cracks in them, then you get a bit of water seeping down into the, the bitumen and then into the base of that. Mm. But when you get as much rain as we had, it starts to flow 
under the bitumen. And you'll see areas where you've got entire sheets of bitumen mm. that have been moved aside. Absolutely. And I've been driving on some roads lately where that's exactly what happens. You'll come along, you'll slow down a bit, there's maybe some witch's hats or some warning signs, and then there'll be two or three metres of just dirt on what should be a bitumen road. Mm. So our roads, there is no doubt about it, are in worse condition than I've ever seen them. And that's mm. just after three years of rain. When you then get the very high rainfall that we've seen just over the last month or so, Obviously, one of the things that happened was the Sarissia Bridge was closed. Mm. Now, the last time we closed, that was 2010. Yep. Now, in 2010, it was closed for a couple of weeks, and that created absolute bedlam throughout the CBD. It was taking maybe an hour and a half to get across the LH Ford Bridge. I remember at the time, we had kids at school still, and we had friends mm. that lived over West Dubbo that had kids at school, and we were actually getting to the point where we would pick up kids for, for friends, take them to one side of the LH Ford Bridge, We'd walk them across the bridge and our friend would pick up their kids on the other side of the bridge. That was quicker than waiting for an hour and a half to get across the bridge. This time, the bridge was only closed for about a day, slightly less than a day. It didn't get quite as high. The river last time in 2010, it was over nine metres. This time, it only got to 8.63 metres, so a little bit less. But our staff at council and also the SES, the Rural Fire Service, the police, all pitched in the interagencies mm-hmm. cooperation there was fantastic. They all pitched in and did a fantastic job to only have that Sri Bridge closed for that length of time. Of course, there's Bly Street along the back of Bly Street that impacts some of those businesses in Macquarie Street. That was opened up as quickly as we could. That got opened up by Tuesday morning. But in general, all that rainfall is having a, a still a big impact mm. on our river. We haven't seen Park Run run in its no, normal course no, for I'm, months I'm now. I'm missing it too. My gut is dead set feeling it, I'm telling you. <laughs> That's right. They've been running one of their alternative courses. Yes, yes. But again, they can't even run that alternative course at the moment. They haven't run Park Run for the last couple of weeks. Mm. Narrow Mine's been the same. They haven't been able to run down there. So that has an impact. Mm. But all of this high flood level or high water flows down the river is also having a major impact on erosion on the river. Mm. And just yes, after, the banks. Yeah, Amazing. just after the Tamworth Street Bridge, you'll notice there there's some severe erosion down in Wellington. We've got one of the bridges closed down in Wellington at the moment because there's erosion around a bank and that's potentially having an impact on one of the entrances, or the road entrances. The bridge itself is fine, yep. but this is the Duke of Wellington Bridge I'm talking about, but the road entrance there, we're concerned about the uh, quality of that road at the moment and okay. whether that might have some more potential collapses there. So we've actually closed that down from a safety perspective mm. and we'll do some investigations there. I think it'll be months before we see that open up again. So wow. these are the things that all this extreme rainfall, extreme weather events are happening or uh, things that are occurring because of it. Yeah. We don't think there'll be any sort of relief from this until maybe December. So we're expecting these high rainfalls through to then. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, And I suppose the other obvious question is going to be the cost of repair. Like, it, how, do, how do we cover those costs? Yeah, that's a really scary one. Even if we just look at our roads, the estimation we had on the infrastructure backlog for our roads a couple of months ago, we'd done the calculation, was about $40 million. Wow. Now, keep in mind that in our budget this year, we've allocated $28 million for our roads. So okay. there's a fair chunk of money that we're spending on our roads already. If we had a blank check and someone said, we'll give you enough money to get your roads to an acceptable standard, mm. we'd want another $40 million straight away mm. on top of that $28 million we're spending already. That was before these latest events. Mm. So I don't have a number, and we will have a number by the end of this financial year, but you can probably be pretty safe in saying it's going to be more than $40 million. Absolutely. So that's just in the road infrastructure, but there are other things, other repairs that are 
going to be necessary as well. The visitor information centre, there'll be a bit of damage yeah. done there from the floods, for example. There's always a few fences down around Trekkerati. Maybe the pedestrian bridges might need a bit of work on the railings that are there. So there's all these other bits and pieces. Some of the funds that we'll need, we do get from state government when we do have flood yes. events. Not all of it, but there'll usually be a contribution from the state government. But keep in mind, the biggest problem for the state government at the moment, and the federal government as well, is that this is not isolated mm. to Dubbo. This Absolutely. is across it's the... across en- yeah. all of New South Wales. Eastern Seaboard, really, has Eastern it? Seaboard, that's yeah. right. So there's Absolutely. a huge bit of impact there that we'll see on the state government. And so other projects they might want to undertake, they'll be spending that money on repairing, fixing up. I mean, think of Lismore, think of the amount of money they're going to yeah. spend on Lismore, for yeah. example. So that'll put huge pressure on the state finances, which is bad for us individually, yep. but bad for the state as well. So a lot of prioritising to happen, I think, over the next uh, few months, mate, isn't there? You know, there's a lot of a lot of big questions that need to be answered in regards to it, and hopefully the money will come through and we can get ourselves back to where we were, well, six months ago at least anyway. Yeah, but I think you've actually hit an important one. It is about prioritisation. Mm. There's only so much money we've got access to in terms of our rate infrastructure and the rating money that we receive, other grants, external grants. Sure, we, we'll keep asking for those, we keep working on those grants, but we've only got so much money. So sometimes it does come down to what do we spend the money on? What's the highest priority? And that's a really important job for councillors to set those priorities. Now, I mm. have people all the time that contact me and say, can you please make sure you just fix up this road? It won't take much to fix up mm. my road and I drive on that every day and it's I a real problem. we're pain. all sort of guilty of that, aren't we? You know, we all do that all the time. Absolutely. That's right. And that's, that's the problem. We have to make some decisions about which roads are the highest priorities, which roads have got the most number of people having the most impact. How do they impact business, for example? How does that impact the economy? All of those things. So the one bit of road that, one individual drives on might be important to them, Mm. but we've got to take a step back and say what's important for the entire region. And we've got over 2,700 kilometres of roads in our LGA. So trying to get the priority levels across all of that, that's a real challenge. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Now, obviously, uh, as part of, I think, what's happened in the last week, of course, we've, uh, here in Dubbo, we've had the Dream Festival began. Now, that began about a week or so ago. Um, there's been some wonderful events happening. Let's, let's talk about the positive stuff first in regards to it. Then we sort of move on to what happened, unfortunately, on Saturday night. So uh, let's talk about the positive. So what, first of all, the inception of the Dream Festival, it, it came about when, and what's been the goal of the Dream Festival? Way back, and I'm hopefully going to get this right, I'm going to guess it's about 2011, Councillor Peter Bartley had the idea that we needed some type of festival, and people were talking about things like the Tenworth Country Music Festival or the Elvis Festival over in parks, those sort of things. We needed something like that. Now, one of the great things about Dubbo is that when we talk to Tenworth, we meet regularly with other similar-sized cities to Dubbo, so mm. such as Tenworth. Yep. When we talk to Tenworth, they say, oh, gee, we wish we had what you have. You've got the zoo. You've got 300,000 people a year every year, spread throughout the entire year, who come to Dubbo because the zoo, isn't that fantastic? And we have people in Dubbo say, oh, I wish we had something like the Tenworth Country Music Festival that packs Tenworth out for a couple of weeks in January. The grass is always greener somewhere, isn't there? That's, That's it. exactly yeah. right. But there's no problem at all, in my mind, having the zoo that we've already got and adding to that with other events. So, mm. again, Councillor Peter Bartley said, let's get something together. Let's put some sort of festival, event, whatever it might be, that really brings people to Dubbo for a short period of time, like a Tenworth Country Music Festival. They put a committee together, they worked on that, they came up with Dream, which was Dubbo Regional 
Entertainment, Arts and Music as oh, the acronym yep, there. That's the acronym. Excellent. And the, they started that. John Walken was the first chair of that particular committee. They ran as a volunteer committee for a number of years. They got some money out of council to help them. And it got to the stage where it was almost getting too big for a volunteer committee. And it probably burnt some of those people out, as happens sometimes when mm, you've got volunteer absolutely. committees. Yep. So it basically got absorbed into a council function. So now there are council staff members with the help of volunteers who run that. And the idea is that you put together a range of different events. So Dream is not meant to be just one single event. And if you take the Tamworth Country Music Festival, it's not just one event on one night. It started as that. Back in the early 70s, 72, 73, it might have started. It started then as an awards night, one single awards night. And now it's grown into a huge event, absolutely put Tamworth on the map. So in terms of Dream, it's a little bit the same. There's a number of events. So in this year's Dream, for example, we had Zookustic out at the zoo. We've had a seafood festival at a market event at the showground. So there's usually a few events part of it. We had Fong Lee's, a real event down in Wellington. This was the event in Wellington, yes. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, due to weather, that Mm. was cancelled this year. But And that that Fong Lee's has been running for a number of years, but it's now been incorporated into part of Dream and can be advertised as part of Dream. nice. We've also had Sky Castle. Now, Sky Castle has been incredibly successful. That's the one down out the front of uh, the Odebo Jail right now, isn't it? Spot on, yeah. Yeah. And we got some money from the state government, a couple hundred thousand dollars from the state government for that, which was fantastic. And that whole exhibition there has been something where – I've gone down to a few times. I've been past at night time. There are always people hanging around. And what we did with that was we basically had a company that will track mobile phones so that we could see how many people were actually visiting that because oh, we want to be able to get I love that. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So how do we go? Yeah. Well, fantastic at this stage. I mean, it's still going, but so far we've tracked about 70,000 people that have gone really? there. Now, let me just give you a bit more background of that. It tracks someone that goes there. If they go off the footpath into Sky Castle, so not just someone walking on the footpath, they've got to be there for more than 80 seconds. Okay. I don't know why 80 seconds was chosen. interesting figure, but we'll go with it. Somewhere, someone came up with a figure that needed to be 80 seconds. It doesn't count you if you go there more than once in a day. Okay. So if you go down and hang around for more than 80 seconds and then go away and come back, I'm going to go there again, it only counts to you as once. But if you go back the next day, it will count you again. Right. So it only counts a mobile phone per day and obviously only counts people that carry a phone with them. So if you've got a child, if you've got a, a young child, nowadays you probably, by the age of six, you have yeah. a mobile phone. But if you've got someone that doesn't have a mobile phone there, it's not counting you. So every individual phone that goes there. So based on all of that, yep. so far we've got 70,000 people that have wow. gone there, which is a fantastic number. And again, it's just a bit different. It just activates the Absolutely. CBD and just puts a bit of life into the nighttime yeah, yeah. Uh, scene it there. It looks magic at night. When, it when does. you're driving past it as well, you know, even if you don't get out, you simply drive past it down there in Macquarie Street. There's, you, you can't help but feel wonderful. Yeah. There's this real, you know, buzzy sort of, almost like a city-fied sort of feel about, look, we're pretty special here. We've got this sitting here right now. I think it's spot on, yeah. We've also had, there was a woman named Jilly who came along and helped school kids create dream lanterns. So there was all this work done on these workshops. Okay. About 350 dream lanterns were created and they were all going to be displayed on yes. Saturday. Now we're going to get to the negatives. That's so, right. so, so, unfortunately, so what happened on Saturday night? Yeah, so nothing. The rain? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Again. It, it had to be a call made because we had a lot of people coming with various lands and various stall holders travelling from a whole range of regions. A call had to be made early. Yeah. You couldn't wait until Saturday to see whether it was raining, when the event was on. So looking at weather forecasts back around Tuesday and Wednesday, a call had to be made. Yeah. On Thursday, a call was made to cancel 
the Dreamland Parade. Now, the Dreamland Parade is getting bigger every year. Yeah, You've got massive. people going through the streets of Dubbo, ending up in Victoria Park, a whole range of stalls there. It's been fantastic in the past, yeah. but unfortunately this year had to be cancelled. Now, again, not much you can do about the weather, and you've got to be a bit conservative on that because you can have a cut-down version of it. You could take it indoors, but if you do all that, is it really worth it? It takes away the effect, doesn't it? I think yeah, that's the beauty of the, that beautiful lantern parade is when they're walking down there, say, Taubergar Street, and they're coming mm. along. You're standing on the side and you're watching it. Yeah. It's just magic to see, isn't it? You it know, is, so yeah. The colours all light up and the animals and all of that that they, they do in those lanterns, they're fabulous. Yeah, and I remember years ago, one of our jobs for our Rotary Club was to actually be part of the counter, like we want to get an idea of the numbers that come through there. Oh, yes. So we stood at one of the entrances there to count people. We had an exchange student with me at the time, so I was going back pre-COVID. But just seeing the people come in, seeing the smiles on their faces mm. and just comments you'd get from people as they'd walk past as you were counting them in, yeah. it was a, a really strong vibe. Mm. It just seemed that really positivity around it. So, yeah, a great event. And that'll be back next Absolutely. year. Absolutely. We'll, we'll bring it back in again next year. Exactly. Where right. we go again. And we had a VIP event this week, which was obviously a little bit of a downer because it was on Thursday night after we'd already made the announcement. Yes. And the sponsors that were there, we've got some great sponsors, Macquarie Credit Union with a made sponsor, yes. Kintyra Estate, Next Gen Civil, Simo Signs, all great sponsors on board. Yep. They all contribute significant funds to that. Yep. And so they were all still very positive, even though it didn't go as well this year as we would have hoped. Mm. That was all still very positive. And those sponsors were very keen to come back on next year. Oh, I'll great. remind them of that next year. Absolutely. But <laughs> I think I know a bloke who can probably do that pretty well. There <laughs> Matty, uh, look, moving right along now, going into uh, what we can say is probably, I think a lot of people in Dubbo have been waiting for this, and that has been the Keswick Estate Auction. Mm. Now, this is the land auction. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media about the fact we need to open up more land here in Dubbo. So, obviously, councils listen. They've turned around. They've opened up the land. How'd the sales go? Yeah, good and bad. Okay. And, and let's go back one step. So, sorry, land development for council has been one of those things in my time on council that I've been up and down about. Mm. I sometimes think, why are we in land development? We should leave that to private companies to let developers do that and we're the consent authority mm. so we should just sit back and do okay. that job back in the early 70s we bought council bought some land and Keswick Estate was one of that it was a huge chunk of farmland that was way outside Dubbo mm. before mm. Rana Mall existed it was a big bit of farmland and council bought that yep. and the view then great vision at the time the view then was to buy that to eventually develop some land around that and have some houses there. I'm sure people at the time were very critical of council for doing that, but it's been good for council to be able to come in and out of that land development when the market needs it. And sure, we generate income from that, so that helps keep a lid on rates because obviously yep. that's an external source of income. And again, over the years, I've gone, oh, should we be in that? And then sometimes I think, oh, gee, I'm glad we're in that. Mm. Now it's one of those times when I'm saying, I'm glad council's there because there is a huge amount of pressure on land development. We've got people that want to come to Dubbo. They move to Dubbo. They get a job in Dubbo. Lots of employment opportunities in Dubbo. I can't find anywhere to live. The mm. housing market has had a huge amount of pressure on it. So we want more land opened up. And there are private developers doing that at the moment. But it also gives the opportunity for council to come in. So we've accelerated that land development. And with this Keswick Estate, this latest release, 52 lots on the market. Now, one of the, the real challenges for council is... It's not like a private developer that can just set a price and negotiate with a sale that comes along. Oh, you want to pay so much for that block of land? I'll negotiate that because it's my my yeah. land. 
everything that's done through council has got to be done by council resolution. You can't right. just say to the staff, just go out and sell that land. Put a figure yeah, on it and away yeah, we go. Well, you can put a figure on it, but again, that's got to be by council okay. resolution. But you can't just say to the staff, just go and get the best price you can because staff have to adhere to council resolutions. Right. So it does make it more complicated mm. to be in business when you're a council. For the first time ever, because the market is so volatile at the moment, for the first time ever, council resolved to go out to auction with all of these blocks of land. Now, they've okay. occasionally before, they might have had a couple of small blocks or some individual blocks where they've actually done it by auction, but never before have we said take a larger state like this, 52 blocks of land, mm. and go out to auction. Now, the unfortunate part was... We hoped to get out to auction a few months ago. There were some delays in the construction. There's been a lot of rain that we've talked Absolutely. about. Yes. And so we probably got it onto the market a little bit later than we would have liked. And in the meantime, the Reserve Bank, they didn't consult council. They went and put the interest rates up a little bit. So that's probably just taken a little bit of the mm, heat out of the market. Yeah, yeah, just probably the edge off. That's spot on. But anyway, we went and had our first auction. The first Friday, we had our first auctions there. 17 lots we put up. Rather than put all 52 in one auction, we thought we'd just do it over three separate auctions did 17 lots in the first auction we've got a reserve in there obviously that's confidential reserve but yep. obviously sales had to get over that reserve price and we sold 11 of those 17 okay. now i would have liked to have sold 17 but 11 that's not too bad a start yep. and we've got some pretty strong prices for those and it was interesting in the auction the auction room was packed yep. we had some other developers in the room who yep. were obviously trying to ascertain what the price was mm. in the market because what a great way to find out the exact price Absolutely. of yeah. the yes, market. There's a current gauge of where it's at. Exactly right. Ask you, Matt, in regards to that, out of this 11 out of the 17 that sold, yep. are they all private people or are they landowners from the point of view developers coming in and wanting to sort of purchase these blocks off you? No, they mostly seemed like private individuals okay. who were buying them. There were some developers in the room, there were some builders in the room, and I can't tell you how many were sold to companies, sure. but it seemed to be the bidding that was going on, they seemed to be mostly individuals. Okay. The other thing, just to confuse it a little bit further, was for the first time ever, we had a hybrid auction where you could be in the room bidding or you could be registered online. So bid number 28 or, or bidder number 28 was putting in a bid. So yep. I would have no idea who bidder number 28 was. If they were successful, obviously we've got the registration details so we can actually sell it to someone that exists and they yep. had to go through a registration process. Yep. But the it seemed to be, certainly in the room anyway, there were private individuals okay. who were buying those blocks of land keen to build their house. So that was the first auction, right. 11 and 17, not yes. too bad. Okay. The second, second one. one, a week later, so the following Friday – had the second auction, again, another 17 lots, a different 17 lots went up for auction. Yep. And in that one, we sold zero. So yeah, right. Not okay. so good. Mm. <laughs> so a bit disappointing okay. yes, there. I imagine uh, if that was your own property, you might be a little bit disappointed. But, exactly uh, right. Now, we had some good, strong numbers in terms of the registrations, online registrations. Okay. We had good, strong registrations of people in the room. Not as many people in the room as the first week. And there were some bids there, but no one quite got to the reserve. Mm. And some of them were passed in with no bids on them. So again, a little bit disappointing there. Now, a little bit of feedback we've had, and yes. we will fix this for the third auction, the, was that the registration process was a little bit complicated. Rather than the standard 100 points of ID, we required four different forms of ID. Some people didn't turn up to the auction with four different forms of ID. Mm. I must admit, I wouldn't think about turning up no. with my passport, for example. No. No. I thought my driver's license and a credit card might be enough with me. Yep. That's 100 points, for example. Yep. So we've probably just got to streamline that and make it a bit easier for people because if it's too complicated for people, they might not have all the information together or they might just say it's all too hard, I'll just wait till later. Sure. So we've got a third one coming up this week and at that one we'll have another 
18 this time, just to so make it 52. Different blocks to the second one? Different blocks again. Okay. And then we're actually talking about it. We'll probably bring back some of those ones from the first two that didn't sell yep. and put those through on that last auction. That might be a bit of a super auction. Yep. From there, we might then go forward. There'll be another council resolution needed if we do this, but we might then go forward and take them through a private treaty, a normal sales process where we'll put an exact price on them yep. and then let our staff go out there and sell them in that process. Okay, so for anyone who's out there who's listening right now in regards to this, a couple of quick little questions I'm going to fire at you. Number one, what's the actual size of probably a normal block that you're selling? Well, that's really interesting. They're getting smaller. Okay. So this had a range of block sizes, but typically in the 600 to 800 square metre range. Okay. And that seems to be a bit of a trend across across all developers going to smaller block sizes. And some people look at those blocks and they say, oh, gee, I'd like to see a, a bigger backyard. And mm. I remember when I grew up, I had a, lot, a nice big backyard. I could play cricket in the backyard. But then other people are saying housing affordability makes it tougher when you've got a big backyard and you've got a garden to look after then. And then if you want to buy a block, a larger block, and then put a small house on it, it looks like it needs a bigger house on it, so maybe we've got to spend more on the house and I can't afford that. In that first auction, the one where we sold 11, the most popular blocks, the ones that were, there was the most activity in bidding were the 600 square metre blocks right? rather than the larger blocks. So that seems to be a trend. And yeah. again, I think my personal view, this isn't necessarily an official council view, but my personal view is that when you see a housing estate, the best view from my perspective is a bit of a mixture. Mm. So having some 600, some 700, some 800, just a bit of a mixture rather than a row of 600 square metre blocks, maybe a bit of a mixture there. But you'll start to see, and you're seeing it across the state, smaller block sizes, even smaller than 600 square metres. And from some perspectives, I can understand that because you don't have as big a garden to look after mm. and you can put that smaller house on there so it does make it more affordable. Yeah, and, and I think, look, I suppose the counter to that has always been, I'd suggest, the fact coming to a place like Dubbo, a, a country area, um, I would think some of the that whole attraction of the country is to come to a bigger block. You know, we come, we come to Dubbo, we can get the bigger blocks and things like that. So it's quite interesting, actually, though, that what you're saying here, though, is that the most popular blocks were the smaller blocks, mm. which seems to be almost counterintuitive to what I would have thought would have been the case. Yeah, and you might be right there in terms of having that dream of the big country block and living out at a fir grove, for example, or somewhere mm. out of town where you've got a 25-acre block. But I think what you are seeing is people are moving from apartments, for example, yes. in Sydney, so they've got no yard, and they think 600 square metres is luxury. They see this huge backyard compared to what that's they might have been is, living in. It's a damn sight bigger sort than I had down there. Yeah, yeah that's right. But it does come down to affordability as well. Sure. And certainly there's pressure on all levels of government to try and deliver better affordability with housing. Yep. Having said that, one of the ways I think that we can address it is have more supply. The pricing has gone up in Dubbo and lots of places around the state because there hasn't been enough housing. So good old-fashioned mm. supply and demand will mean that if the demand is higher and the supply is lower, well, that'll push the prices up. If we can just put more housing in the market, that will reduce that demand slightly, increase the supply slightly, mm. and so that will take a bit of the pressure off. So it doesn't necessarily say that we're going to do something specific to address affordable housing, mm. but just by having more supply in the market, you will get better pricing come yeah. through. Normal supply and demand, the economics of scale. So exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Mate, you've got a, um, a very important local government conference coming up, and yeah. uh, it's sort of coming up obviously this weekend. We're in the process of it. You start there on Sunday. You start with that. Now, in regards to it, tell me about this, because obviously I suggest right now you're going to have a lot of councils and councillors wanting to go to these conferences to speak to some of these ministers and about 
extra funding, what's going to happen now in regards to all the damage that's being incurred around the place across all of our regions. So tell me about what are you expecting this week in regards to that uh, that conference? Yeah, I'm a big fan of conferences. I think even in my business life, I've sent lots of staff to conferences over the years. I've attended lots of conferences. And I think one of the really important things there is you do get, exactly as you said, a chance to talk to other people in similar situations. You get a chance to find out what's going on, some trends in the market. You'll sit some around some trade stalls and people will try and sell you stuff, but you get to find it in information about what they're trying to sell you and where they think things are going. Mm. Local government conferences have got all that to offer. So I'm a big fan of attending local government conferences and getting councillors, especially in this group of councillors, we've got a lot of new councillors, getting as many of those as possible to get to a local government conference. Now, if you wanted to, you could go to a conference every week. There is some conference mm. about something in local government every week, but this one that we're going to this week in particular is the local government New South Wales, which is our peak body. It's their conference. Right. We've got 128 councils across the state. The majority of those councils will be represented. Most of the time you'll see, for example, the general manager or CEO there, along with the mayor or mayor and councillors, you'll probably have in the room maybe 700 councillors. I'll I'll tell you next week how many councillors we had there. That's a lot of councillors in one space, isn't it? It is. And that's probably councillors and general managers. So a lot of those people that are the decision makers in council. And the, the great thing about a local government conference is not only do you get the expert speakers, the sharing of ideas, but you do get, as you mentioned, the ministers come along. So we'll have the Minister for Small Business. We'll probably have some other ministers along there, some shadow ministers as well. And there'll be a chance to not only hear from them, to hear their thoughts, but also a chance to grab them aside and Mm. really push your agenda, push your view in terms of what should be happening. It's actually a question I was going to ask you. If you got the chance to have the local government minister for, you know, 20 minutes, what would you actually uh, ask of that person right now? Yeah, it really is about funding. It's really about cost shifting. We've seen a lot of cost shifting over the years where we see things that are state government responsibility, but Mm. then they just try and push some of those costs down onto local government. And what I've seen, I mean, my first election into local government was 2004. So from 2004 to now 2022, There are so many more things that it seems like local government is expected to do. Now, I'm not sure if that expectation is from the community or from the state government or even just things that councillors create in terms of those expectations, but there's no doubt about it. What we're expected to do in 2004 and what we're expected to do now is different. And I I don't know if I want to say dramatically different, but it seems it's a fair bit different. And a lot of that involves extra costs, so things Mm -hmm. that we seem to be paying for that may be state government, in some cases maybe federal government should be paying for, but when you get to the ground, it seems like local government is the one that's closest to the ground. Mm. So we're the ones that have got to talk to our residents on a daily basis. You walk down the street, you go to the supermarket. My wife jokes that it takes me half an hour to go and get a bottle of milk from the supermarket Mm -hmm. because you duck in there and someone will grab you and talk to you about important things. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But you don't see that same level of exposure for state and federal government, for example. And in council, we've got 10 councillors and all those councillors are out there in the community every day having those conversations. So you're really at the coalface of what people expect in the community. And if I give some examples from around the region, I know in in years gone by, you've got some of the smaller councils out west that have had to do some things that you think are absolutely crazy, but they've had to do that for their community. So, for example, there's a council in this area, and I won't go into specific details, but had to open up a hairdressing studio. And you think, why is the council Mm. involved in a hairdressing studio? The feedback they were getting was that they couldn't get people to move to that particular small community because you couldn't even get a haircut. So they thought, well, we need to solve this problem and listen to what people are saying. So saying to a local government minister, we are running a hairdressing studio to get people to our community 
most ministers would say, what are you doing? That seems crazy. But that's what they're responding to in terms of the needs of the community. Yeah. You do find that local governments end up running things like aged care facilities or maybe they create a medical facility and bring in doctors, uh, locum doctors, for example, because they can't get mm. a local medico. Mm. So all these things that there's nowhere in the Local Government Act 1993 that says you should open up a doctor's studio or a hairdressing studio, but these are things that local government do because they see the need in that local community. Oh, mate. I'm telling you, there's a whole conversation here we could have on this. I think there's there's a lot of different areas. I'd love to know more about what Dubbo does in regards to that, our own little special things we do. But yeah. we'll just simply park those ones. We'll save those for another day. Sure. Last week, uh, you guys went out to see a solar farm, or a couple of solar farms. And I know this is a big area of love for you, the technology area. So um, this this seems to be a big... We've got the big solar farm just outside Dubbo there, heading out towards Fergrove on going up the right-hand side. Um, is this our future? Are we looking at more of this around this region? So... What was the experience like the other day? Yeah, so that one you talk about there obviously is one, but we went a bit further, we went down to Bedengra. So there's a renewable energy zone. This is something the state government has said, we've got to do something about renewable energy. And if we don't start thinking about it now, as these coal-fired power plants close down, which they are mm, doing, absolutely. they need severe maintenance and there's not it's not worth spending the money on them now because renewables will be taking over. So the state government has nominated a couple of renewable energy zones. The one around Bedangra, and it does cover a couple of LGAs. It goes a little bit into the Warren Bungle LGA, a little bit in the Midwestern, which is the Mudgee Council LGA there, and obviously in the Dubbo Regional Council area. That renewable energy zone is the most advanced of all of them. It probably won't be the biggest by the end, by the time that all the reses are done, but this particular one is the most advanced. And part of that is because we already had some things that were happening before the declaration of a renewable energy zone. And in fact, most of the projects you see now are actually to some extent, outside the renewable energy zone, mm. although they'll be part of it when the work is finished there. And so what the state government's doing there is they're saying, these renewable energy zones, we need to get the power from those back into the areas where it's needed. So they're basically doing some major upgrades of the infrastructure that takes power from these areas back down to where the most of the population is. So they'll be doing some major upgrades of the transmission lines, right. for example, without the proponents of these particular projects having to spend the money on that. So the state government's saying, we'll put the transmission lines in, yep. you as the proponents, you go and put in the wind farms or the solar farms. So one we went and had a look at the other day, and we've been to a few inspections already with some of these because they're pretty exciting. Mm. And, and we've got a, the challenge for us as a council is to work out how we can get some money for our community out of these projects because it's all well and good that we solve the problems of the Absolutely. world, yeah, yeah. but what does it mean for those local communities? So a few months ago, we went down to a tour of the Bedengra wind farm. There's 33 wind turbines there. Off the top of my head, each turbine, these are smaller turbines, believe it or not, they do about 3,000 homes per turbine. So there's 100,000 homes that we're supplying power from around the Bedengra area. Yep. And in terms of Wellington, the employment there, they don't need many employees. Mm. They've got probably four full-time employees to that's run. All. That's it. Because once you put renewable power in, yeah. you don't need to do a lot of work on it. So that's some extra income for the Wellington community, but yeah, not, a not a lot. lot is it? No. And you also have a community benefits fund, and that's compulsory. When you put... A, an application in to put a wind farm in and it's something that we aren't the consent authority council is not the consent authority the state government does that but there has to be an agreement with the local community to have some money going to a community benefits fund so there's a small amount of money that we get for the wellington community out of those wind turbines there solar farms for mm. some strange reason don't have to do that 
Some right. of them do have some contribution to a local community, but there's no compulsory process. Now, if I'm a business owner and someone says to me, you can volunteer to pay some money to your local community or not, I'm probably going to say, well, I'm looking at the bottom line. Mm. Why am I going to just volunteer to give money mm. away? I don't want to do that. Thanks mm. very much. Wind farms have to, but solar don't. But there's still a contribution they'll make to the community during construction, and you'll still have some local employment. But we went and looked at the Light Source BP one. Now, the right. Light Source BP one, as you're going, you go down to Wellington, go across to Mudgee, you see on the left-hand side there, huge amount of solar panels there. It's a 200-megawatt farm, solar farm there. That powers about 72,500 homes. That's a lot of homes. That's a lot of homes. So out of that, just that one there... And the wind farm I mentioned a moment ago, there's 170,000 homes that are being powered by those couple of projects just there alone. Now, the interesting part is Mm. one of the things I love about wind farms Mm. is that for a farmer there, they've got their land. Someone comes along and says, we'd like to put some wind turbines on there. That farmer gets, and it changes from farm to farm and different agreements, they might get, say, 20 grand a year per turbine that's on their farm. And they haven't lost a lot of their farming land. There's a small pad that the turbine sits on, and they've got an upgrade to their roads, because normally they'll come in and put some better roads in during construction. But they can keep running their farm as per normal. And when I've talked to some of those farmers, they love it, because it makes their farm drought-proof. They've got money coming in externally, so that if they do have drought, which we'll have again... They've still got a constant source of income. Absolutely right. And they can then hand feed or pay for feed if they need to. They can still sell off their sheep that they might be running on their farm, for example, but they've got that constant source of external income. So it's absolutely brilliant. One of the complaints or one of the criticisms Mm. of a solar farm is that obviously you're covering the land up with solar panels. So it's not like a wind turbine that only covers a small amount of land. If you've got pristine cropping land that's absolutely perfectly flat and you're growing wheat on there, for example, you put a solar farm on there, then it's pretty hard to grow wheat in between the rows of solar panels. So it's a valid argument. But the one we looked at, the light source one in particular, that used to be a grazing property. And one of the really interesting things is at the moment, they're still running sheep on that particular farm. But they go underneath the They go the in between and underneath. And the panels move during the day, so yeah, they right. obviously follow the sun across. The sheep don't mind. The sheep seem to love it. What yeah. actually happens is, and there's still more data to be gathered on this, is that the wool on the sheep's back seems to be a little bit thicker in terms of more weight and a little bit better quality than sheep that are exposed to the elements. So there's more work being done, but what they'll find that the data at this stage says that approximately you'll get about 70% of the capacity in terms of you can run about 70% of the sheep you used to run. So you lose a little bit of capacity there, but the the wool quality and the wool volume increases a little bit. So you don't quite lose the full 30%, but then you've also got that income from the whole solar farm. So that's fantastic. So we looked at one. Then next door, we looked at another project there that'll be next door to the Light Source one. It's called the Light Source North Project, Light Source BP North Project. That'll be a 400 megawatt farm. So between those two... double the size of the first one you saw. That's right. And and so between those two, there's about 600 megawatts. So roughly, that'll be about 200,000 homes. And then they've got another project they're looking at, which is over, it goes a, a little bit onto the Warren Bungle side of their LGA, and that'll be an 800 megawatt, actually 840 megawatt solar farm. Oh. So that, again, will be about 250,000 homes there. So to put that in perspective, how many homes do you think are in Dubbo? Uh, at, at the moment in Dubbo, you've got about 13,000 homes. 13,000, that's yeah. so you're talking here, oh my God, yeah. just do your maths yourself, folks, but that's, that's a <laughs> lot of homes, a lot of, a lot of right. towns and cities. And that's the argument that we, in terms of this area, yeah. will be providing a 
power for a huge number of homes. Now, keep in mind, we've also got another couple of wind farms that are being proposed. One's just under 100 turbines and one's just over. Yep. I mentioned before the Bedangra wind farm has got older turbines that are a bit smaller, 3,000 homes. These mm. new ones might be 4,000 or 5,000 homes per turbine. So you think about that. Let's say in round numbers you've got 200 turbines proposed in those two mm. projects. Let's say there's about 4,000 homes or more. There's about 800,000 homes that will be powered by those. So you start to see why people in Wellington say, this is great, we're helping save the planet, but we'd like a bit of income out of that as well. Exactly right, Matt. I think that's that's probably the big question why. Mm. I'm suggesting a few people out there right now thinking, well, that's all great, it's wonderful, and we're going to do our bit for the environment, which is wonderful, let me tell you. I think it's terrific. Yep. But what do we get for it as well, apart from that lovely feeling of the fact we're the group that's actually trying to do something to help the environment. Yeah. Where's our little kickback on this? And this is the challenge for council. That's the real thing we're working on at the moment. Again, it's voluntary for solar farms, so we've mm. got to work with proponents there and try and appeal to their social licence, appeal to their good nature, which is a tough gig when you're mm. talking about a large, often multinational company and they're looking at their shareholders. Wind farms do have to, and there's a, an argument from the state government about how much that should be. Should it be left to each individual council to have that discussion, given the fact that we can't say no, we aren't the consent authority. So we don't have a lot of bargaining power there. No. The state government probably should come along and say, here are the set prices either per megawatt or per tower, for example. And per megawatt seems to be the more common one, although they are talking about capital expenditure as well. If you go and spend $200 million on that project, you've got to give 1% or mm. 1.5%, for example. So there's some different arguments around that. Mm. That'll all wash out. But somewhere along the line, we've got to get some income from it. But also what I talk to these various proponents about is – we want some local employment as well. Yeah. When you've got one of your engineers, design engineers, or your design engineering team sitting in an office in Sydney paying exorbitant rent on an office space in Sydney, then most of the work they're doing is on a computer or on mm. a telephone. You could do that from an office in Wellington. Why don't you move some of your staff to Wellington? So it's yeah. those sort of things, mm. I think. But again, let's see what we can do. And that's a real challenge for us at the moment. What can we get for the Wellington community out of these projects? Mm. The other dream that I've got, and we've talked to some of these proponents about this, yeah. is that I look at the Parkes Telescope. Now, that is a very technical thing that's used. And again, we know about the moon landing, the famous moon landing, but it's used every day for significant research for the world, for the planet. But they've made a tourist attraction out of that. Isn't yes. that fantastic? Yes. We probably all went there as kids at school and over some yeah, school excursion. Yeah, we've taken kids over there ourselves. And so I think they've done a really good job taking something that's a very scientific, mm. operational thing, and they've turned it I into a tourist where you're attraction. Going with this, yes. So yeah. there yeah. is a fascination with wind turbines. There's a fascination with how we generate that power. And I look at the viewing platform at Nevertire. There's a solar farm, and I talked to some people at the Nevertire pub one day. I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah and right. and they said it's amazing the number of people who are tourists going out wherever they might be going. They find this viewing platform. And they drive out this little road to a viewing platform and stand up and they look across a sea of solar panels. Now, mm. I actually find it fascinating, solar mm. panels, yeah. but I didn't think it would be a tourist attraction. No, no, that's so right. what I've got this dream for is in Wellington, we've got solar farms, we've got wind turbines, we've also got batteries being proposed, some large-scale batteries to try and even out that power delivery when the sun's not shining or wind's yep. not blowing, or even even out the frequency of the delivery of that power out to the network, out to the, the whole grid. Yeah. So potentially imagine having some form of tourist attraction there mm. where you could have it situated somewhere because there's spots you can do this where you can see 
wind turbines. Mm. You can see parts mm. of the solar farm. When batteries are built, you'll be able to see that. Yep. And then having an educational piece in there yeah. where you could actually see right now how much power is being generated out of this Bedenga area, how much power is being generated in this renewable energy zone, go through some of those technical things yeah. and even have the potential maybe to go out there and do a, a bit of a tour around some of these parts. Yeah. There's also a training component where at the moment some people that have got to work on these wind turbines have got to go and do specific training on wind turbines, actually go up inside a turbine, go up and do some of the training. Okay. Imagine having a turbine there that was both a training and tourist yeah, component. Like an experience, so live the experience. experience Get inside it, it, check it out, Imagine walk that. up the steps. Yeah, and I've been exercise for the day as well, by the way. I've, that's right. I've been inside wind turbines and I find them fascinating. Yeah. I've looked inside the gearbox when they've been sitting on the ground. So all of those things are fascinating. Yeah. But you can imagine getting to that point where you said, we can actually go in there, look at it, play around with it, mm. just be part of it in a very safe, controlled way, obviously. Yeah. But doing all of that as an educational piece. So that's that's uh, a bit of a dream look, of mine. With an education background, Matt, as you know, I can see masses of school kids lining up there, hordes yeah. of their thousands. Because it, it would be a fascinating type of uh, subject and it, it would be so interesting. Yeah, you know, it's like when you drive along, heading out to Mudgee, and you see those huge big wind turbines. You can't help but become excited about those things. So, yeah, I, I'm i with you. I'm yeah. with you on the dream on that one. I, uh, I actually think they look majestic. I've, I've had some people complain majestic. about those those wind turbines, <laughs> but they just sit there. Most of them they spin do, about 12 revolutions per minute. Architecturally, they're, they're, they are. they're amazing looking thing, aren't and, they? And they're not, as I say, 12 revolutions per minute, so they're not that fast. Yeah. And they just sit there and you think, wow, look at that. It's just sitting there, ticking away, and that's just generating power. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we've used wind for a long time. I mean, windmills, and and who hasn't played the game? Windmills have been on a car trip, for example. Absolutely. We've seen windmills for thousands of years be used for different things, not just power, obviously, but now in a modern environment, seeing them there, Mm. I I just think there's excitement around what we're contributing, and certainly it looks better than a coal-fired power plant spewing out. Oh, absolutely. Remember the ones of Lithgow there, near those places? That's right. Now, the other big uh, technology-based announcement that happened during the week was in regards to a, now I'm going to get to try this right, a 3D-printed amenity block in Lions Park in Dubbo. Mm. Now, we're not talking about paper here, are we? We're not talking about paper. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the concept here of 3D printing buildings. Now, we've seen across the world, there are different parts of the world where they've tested, experimented 3D printing homes. And it is like a 3D printer that you might hook up to your computer on a very large scale. And what comes out is a sort of a harder concrete that basically comes out. When I've watched the videos of it, you see it come out a bit like a toothpaste. So there's a gantry set up. It comes out and lays out a plan of a house and does it layer by layer by layer, does it very quickly, very cost effectively. You've still got the work to do afterwards. You've got to do the electric, uh, basically the electric, if you like, right. in the house, all, all the, the cabling, the wiring there. Yes. You've got to do the plumbing. So you've got to do all those normal things. But the actual construction of the house, so all the external walls, you can do external and internal walls, are all done. Now, one of our councillors many months ago said, I'm pretty excited about this concept. Why don't we really try and promote it in Dubbo? And we had a resolution go through council that in a land release we're doing next year from Keswick, we're reserving four blocks of that release specifically for a 3D printed home. Yeah, right. So if you're going to buy one of those blocks of land, you have to put a 3D printed home on there. Are, are they, they costly? Are they the same cost as building a normal home? Are they cheaper? Or what's what, what are the advantage of these uh, of this type of setup? There should be two advantages, okay. cheaper and quicker. 
Yep. And given the fact that we've got this real push on more housing, mm. if we could produce housing cheaper and quicker, that sounds like a fantastic thing. So that resolution went through council and the media interest in that was incredible. Mm. Then we had phone calls from various companies from not just in Australia but around the world. We had a Singaporean company, for example, oh, wow. contact okay. us. So, so far, we've had about eight meetings with companies who say they can do 3D printed homes. Now, it'll come down to market forces. In yeah. other words, we'll sell those blocks of land next year and someone will buy those and they'll put their 3D printed home. But they're all trying to pitch their services to council. We're not going to own that home or we're not going to pay for that home. It's going to be some project that will be done. Yeah. But... In the meantime, we thought, well, is there an opportunity somewhere in council for us to utilise mm. what is there in this technology? Mm. Now, the amenities block in Lions Park in West Dubbo is due for replacement. It's an old amenities block. It needs to be updated, refreshed there. Yeah. And so we took that opportunity and said, well, we've talked to some of these companies about 3D printed homes. Maybe there's an opportunity mm. to actually do something like an amenities block, which is much simpler than yep. a home, obviously. And any of these companies that want to do it and show off their technology, maybe they'll be keen to do it. So... There's a normal tender process we would do for something like amenities block. We would normally go out to tender and say, please put in your best price for a 3D, sorry, an amenities block. And we look through those tenders, pick one of the builders that's got enough experience and skills to do the job at the best price. But in this particular scenario, we're going out to tender for a 3D amenities block so that anyone that submits a tender for that has to do it as a 3D printer job. Now, we haven't got those tenders in yeah. yet, so we haven't actually gone through that process and looked at those tenders, but I'm hopeful that the tenders that come in will be cheaper, they'll be able to do it quicker, but also I'm pretty keen to see some of these companies that want to show off their technology, Absolutely. put in some really sharp pricing on yeah, that, yeah. so it might be a good yeah. benefit for the Dubbo community in getting a cheaper amenity block in terms of the cost of that, yeah. but also I think there'll be a bit of interest around oh, the nation. I'm fascinated by the whole yeah, project. Yeah, this I'm, is something new, I'm sure really new. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be people who want to come along and actually watch that process occur, and yeah. it doesn't take long. The, that 3D printed amenities block, I think, will probably take a day at most to no actually kidding. do. Is that all? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so my be goodness fascinating. So anyway, we've That's got... fascinating. Yeah, we, we put out expressions of interest to various developers yeah. and various yeah. people to, to look at that. So we'll see tenders come through and eventually we'll award a tender to someone and then we'll talk about it on the podcast Beautiful. in future Absolutely. weeks. We'll, uh, we'll hold that one off for a later date as well. Now, mate, the uh, the Dubbo Day Awards is coming up. Yeah. Um, now, let's, uh, tell us about Dubbo Day Awards. This has been going now for how many years, and, and how do people nominate for this? So the 23rd of November, 1849, just a few years before you and I were born. About three or four, I think. <laughs> that's right, was the Gazettel of Dubbo as a village. Right. So we kind of say that was the birth of Dubbo, if you like. Then when some celebrations happened, I think it was around the sesquicentenary. Oh, the 150-year celebration. Yeah, I think it was then that the idea was born for some sort of recognition of people that have contributed to Dubbo. So it was born this idea of Dubbo Day Awards. Yep. And then the next year, it was, well, that was a pretty good event last year. And we recognised some people that are contributing in Dubbo. So right. why don't we do that every year? So it's become an annual event now. Yep. So that's been going for over 20 years. And we do it on the 23rd of November each year, okay. not surprisingly. Yes. And so at the moment, we've got nominations open. So nominations will close this week. Okay. And typically, we give out a number of those awards. So it's not the same as, say, an Australia Day Award where we're just picking one from those. We like mm. to give multiple of these awards out because it really is a recognition of just people out there in the community doing good, not expecting any thank you, any significant pat on the back. And so it's a bit of a celebration of just what a great community Dubbo is. And I get a bit excited about them. I've done them for a number mm. of years. Mm. And even when I wasn't on council, the typical process is we invite former councillors along to hand out those awards as well. So each time we do these awards, typically you'll see councillors from years gone by come along. It's a bit of a, a reunion yeah. of the 
those various yeah, councillors and Absolutely. they'll talk about what happened back in their day and how much yep. better it was then and what we're getting <laughs> wrong now and all those things. But normally we might give out, say, up to 20 awards, for example, where we just, again, give a bit of recognition for yep. people doing that. So if you go to our website at the moment, yes. there's a application form. You can just go there. It's on our main page there, an application form. Give us some details, fill in that. Just tell us someone that you think is doing some great work, volunteering in the community, doing something that's making a difference. It doesn't have to be changing the world. It just needs to be something where they're making that contribution. I've seen in the past Rotary Clubs, for example, people that are contributing there, maybe a president of a Rotary Club that's done some good work in that last year, or it might be over a number of years, they've volunteered for a number of years in a PNF society or a PNF association, and they've just been doing their working away, athletics clubs, all these different things that we know people out there do. I remember seeing a census from a couple of years ago. I haven't Mm. looked at the latest one, but the volunteering rate in Dubbo was much higher than the volunteering rate across the nation. You know what, Matt? That does not surprise me at all. Yeah, it really doesn't. We we are a town and a city out this region, aren't we? We we just I think this is part of the reason maybe sometimes why we don't volunteer people because we just sort of go, oh, I don't want to be recognised for my efforts. And I think sometimes we we have to turn around and go, you know what? What you're doing is pretty special. Yeah. You know, I want to recognise you for what you're doing, and I think we need to be. You know, doing that a lot more. And so. I think you're right. I think people just go, oh, no, don't nominate me for that. I, 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 yeah. I'm just doing that. That's, that's, that's my little thing I do. So yeah, that's right. No, and which is very so special. normally I say to people, don't tell someone you're nominating them. Just go and nominate them. Just go them. and do it. Just the, as, appear on their, uh, you know, through the via their email or something later Yeah, that's on. right. Now, as part of that, we also have the Tony McGrain Award, which is something that was introduced after Tony died. Yes. And so the Tony McGrain Award is a little bit different in that it's someone that's doing some great work in paid employment. So someone that might be working and paid for what they do. It might be in a government job, for example. And they're, they're being paid. So it's a bit different to the Day Awards, which are specifically for volunteers. Volunteers, mm. But there are some people out there who do their paid employment but do an exceptional job and go way above and beyond. Mm. So there's that other one as well where we say to people nominate someone for the Tony McGrain Award as well. But it's an exciting day. Nominations close this week. So this week, this Thursday? This Thursday they'll close uh, and get those nominations in. And then on the 23rd of November, you'll get a chance to see all those awards Beautiful. come through. Oh, what a wonderful way to recognise some of Dubbo's finest. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. During the week, you also attended the John Mason book launch. Hey, <laughs> John Mason. John Mason. Well, what a, he was an incredible man, wasn't he? He like, still is. He, yeah. still, well, yeah, don't give him was like, yet. I, I, I haven't sort of put him in his funeral or parlour yet, but I shouldn't have done that. Sorry there, John. So tell me about the book launch. He's, uh, he's only about John too. Yeah, for those yeah, who may he's, not know. He's only ninety-three years young at Is this that stage, all? John, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Fair and enough. and I did. I had the pleasure, and it was a great honour actually to officially launch that for John, and it was a great honour to do that. John was our local member, Dubbo's local member, from the 1st of May 1965 to the 28th of August 1981. So 16 years, just over 16 years, he was our local member. Right. And something that he really fell into, had no plans to do that, he was a Methodist minister in Dubbo in the early 60s, became good friends with Les Ford. Les Ford is our longest serving mayor ever. Les Ford did about 14 years. He was also a local member and you're really stretching me now, but I think he was our local member for maybe about five years and unfortunately died on in December 1964, suddenly had a heart attack and died. Mm. And John was good friends with Les. And then people started talking to John and saying, you should stand as the local member. And he said, oh, I've never thought about that. Mm. And so it developed very quickly. Next thing you know, John standing for election and got elected and got elected again for the next 16 years ended up as leader of the Liberal Party in opposition, so leader right. of the opposition, right. so fairly significant that someone from, from Dubbo. Yes. And people think that 
Dubbo's a safe National Party seat, but over the years we've had Liberal Party members, i.e. Mm-hmm. John, yep. we've had Labor Party members, we've had Independents, Tony McGrain and Dawn yes. Fidel, and of course National Party members over the years. So yeah. it's been a whole mixed bag of Dubbo, which is a good thing. You don't want some seat that's oh, just always... You want to have that swinging seat sort of idea, yeah, don't you? Yeah, you don't want yeah. someone just entrenched in that. So John did some great work there. Uh, John also, and, and I remember John probably more from what his kids did, so his son Dave was in The Reels, ah, the band The Reels. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. And there is of, a connection there. Yes. There is, yes. yeah. One of my big brothers was friends with Dave, and I remember Dave... In in fact, I remember a couple of the band members of the Reels, and I didn't realise how significant it was at the time. When I yep. was a kid, I remember a few of these guys coming in, and they seemed to know their music fairly well. And they walked in, and we had a record player, just right. for those people that <laughs> remember back to remember those players. days. Absolutely, spin the wheel. There, there was a record player in there was, I was in my sister's bedroom, and, and we're in there and just listening to some music. And, mm. and one of these guys walked in. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Dave. Who knows? But he said, uh, "I think that belt." on that record player is a bit stretched. That's just out of beat ever so slightly. And we're going, what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, my sister took the record player down yeah, to his service. Was right. And they said, yep, this is playing just a bit slow. And so they were that good with their wow. music, they could pick up that that beat was just That's out. That's a talent so the heart, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It. So they were, they were pretty good with their music. So it was, a, it was very funny. But John used to get criticised at Parliament sometimes. There were some various quotes that were thrown around about John having his pot-smoking, rock-and-roll children kind of thing. How could he be a good member of Parliament with his children like that? So they reflected on that. But so John has you know, had a fantastic life, obviously local member, yeah. a huge amount of experience there. And then he's been talked into by his kids, and he's still got one of his kids living in Dubbo, busy is, uh, is here in Dubbo, trying to get him to do his life story. And yep. he always thought, I didn't do enough in my life to have my life story. Yep. Very humble man. Absolutely. What they eventually convinced him to do was write down some stories. So it's a life story in in kind of dressed up, if you like, but it's really just 50 stories about his time, oh, mainly wonderful. in Parliament. Yep. And so it's a bit of a life story in that scenario. Sounds like a great read. Uh, yeah, it was. So I got the book early, had a bit of a read of it there. And and probably my favourite was there, and I did talk about this on the day, was he talked about when he became the Member of Parliament, the first time he had a meeting with a mayor. And, and I did talk about it the day that this is the, the latest meeting with a mayor being me when he's sitting there talking mm. to me. And I said, I'm glad I wasn't the first mayor you met, John, because it was back when Peak Hill still was its own local government area. Peak Hill is now part of the park's local government area. But Peak Hill had its own local government area and had its own mayor. And he'd been asked to come over and meet the mayor. There's some issues that they wanted to talk about. And Parks, or sorry, Peak Hill was in John's electorate. So he went over to meet the mayor and they said, right, we've got to take you out. And they're going out past the hospital and out to this tin shed. Mm. And John's looking there and said, where are we going? He said, does the does the mayor work here? And is he a hospital administrator? What's going on? And they finally went out the back to the morgue and they showed the mayor laid out. He'd passed away that day. So, so John said his first meeting with the mayor was something where he got no feedback from the mayor whatsoever. So, so I did say I'm glad I wasn't the first mayor that John ever that's met. That's right, absolutely. That's it. But yeah, so it's a tale of 50 different stories like that of Brilliant. various things that happened in his life. But he, he has led an interesting life, still contributing now. He's got a group of men called the Grumpy Old Men. Oh, yes, he's yes, kind of yes, kicked yes. that off. I feel off. as I'm moving to that age, let me tell you as well. Well, I, I have been along as a guest, let me just say. Let me remind people there as a guest to the grumpy old man and spoke to them. But again, it's one of those things that John just comes to a community and gets things happening. So at 93, he's still active in the community, Amazing, still it? making things happen. There's an inspiration right there for all of us. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, the book's been launched. It's for sale at Dave Pankhurst's Book Connection. Uh, Dave was there on the day doing some sales on the day. But uh, yeah, look, it's an interesting read and it's, it's worthwhile reading just to see, even just to hear about what happened in Parliament, some of the privileges that politicians get these days compared mm. to how John had it. They used to sleep at Parliament House there. You had your office and you had 
a room to sleep in there. And if you're in the opposition, you had two parliamentarians to a room. If you're in government, one of the luckiest in government, you've got your own room. <laughs> Another reason why you want to be in government. There exactly it was. You're right. <laughs> that bloke snored too much. Now, speaking of inspiration, uh, I see that you went along to the Little Winds fundraising night there uh, on Saturday night. What a great group. Yeah, what an amazing operation they are in town, aren't they? Yeah, there are so many great organisations out there in a community doing great things, and you don't really know about them until you have a need for them. And Little Wings is just another one of those organisations. So the general business model of Little Wings is that they own their own aircraft. They've got four aircraft that they own, four beachcrafts, or the same aircraft, different vintages, but the same aircraft to make their maintenance costs a bit better. They cover all the fuel costs of those aircraft with their fundraising efforts. And then they have professional pilots. These are people that generally fly larger aircraft. They might fly some 767s or some A380s, some high-level commercial aircraft for a range of airlines. So it might be Virgin, might be Qantas, might be those big organisations, big airlines. And then in their time off, as if they haven't done enough flying, they then volunteer their pilot time to come and fly these aircraft little wings to go out into the community and help kids in the community. So essentially, if you've got a child that lives more than three hours from a major hospital, and they've got certain hospitals that they classify as those major hospitals, if you've got more than three hours drive to get to that hospital, then you can contact Little Wings and get set up with a scenario where they will fly you into that hospital, fly your sick child and the family members that might need to go along with them, and they're trying to keep the family units together. They fly them in, have the treatment they might need to have, and then fly them back, all at no cost to the family. Now, they rely on fundraising. They have a budget of about $1.6 million a year, the majority of which is raised through fundraising. And this is what I mean. There are so many of those great organisations out there that are doing this sort of thing. They're out there fundraising, providing services for the community, and this is just another one of those. So the dinner on Saturday night was very uplifting. We watched some videos of some people that were telling their stories and it was pretty hard not to get a couple of tears in the eyes listening to those stories. And then we heard from someone in the audience as well who told their story in the person. So they talked about their story and how Little Wings had had a major impact on them. So one of the, I suppose, really uplifting things, one of the really pleasing things that I've had of my time on council is that I've discovered all these organisations that are out there in the community making these great contributions in the community. I didn't know about them, but you are exposed to them as a councillor and you get to see the great work and the real community spirit that's there for these organisations. And Little Wings is one of those organisations, I must admit, a great one of those organisations, about to hit their 10-year anniversary, but there are many organisations out there like Little Wings doing some fantastic work in our community. That's fantastic. And it's just another great example of a wonderful community group here in Dubbo, isn't it, in this yeah. region? Yeah, exactly right. On the sporting front, my friend, uh, how did, did you happen to sort of catch up with uh, the football results there on Saturday morning at around about that oh, 5.30, 6 o'clock and watched two of Dubbo's finest in Matty Burton and Isaiah Yo absolutely give it to the Scots? Well, I was still sleeping after the Rhinos, so I didn't oh, actually watch that, the game that live. That surprise me. There it was. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do apologise to, to Matt and Isaiah there. I didn't catch them there. But isn't that great to wonderful. see two 
of our representatives from Dubbo playing yes. for Australia at the same time. Now, in the past, of course, we've had Dean Pay play yes. for Australia. We've had Andrew, Andrew Ryan. Ryan. Not at the same time. No. But to have it. two on the field, it must have been pretty special for those two as well. Oh, and obviously yeah. their parents. So it's pretty great to see them down there and just being part of the NRL and playing there and, and seeing Dubbo represented. And often you'll hear the reference to Dubbo when they're on the field mm. playing. Commentators might mention. You can't help but swap with pride. You yeah, know, when it's you get great those to moments see. And, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And yeah. boy, oh boy, I have to tell you, I watched the game and they were magnificent. Yeah, good. So you get the chance, and you may have already probably done so, I'd suggest the fact that have a look and see Matty Burton's flicking pass to uh, Josh Addo Carr yeah, in right. the dying seconds of the game. Okay. It was something spectacular. Be one of the tries of the year, undoubtedly. <laughs> yeah, Double boy, proud. Have a look. Yep. There he is. In regards to sport, is there anything else happening in regards to sport in our region? Any major events coming up that you can announce right now, which you know are coming up in the next few months? Well, some have already announced, and one of the really significant ones, and I'm a bit concerned about now after all this rain, but is the Touch Footy Northern Conference we've got. So this is a junior Touch Footy Carnival, huge carnival. A few years ago, we put in a bid for it, and it's a three-year contract. So basically, if you win the bid, you get to have the Northern Conference come along and typically you'll see 10,000 people come into your community for about four days. So in terms of injection into the economy, absolutely huge injection into the economy. Now, we put in that bid. We weren't successful. Port Macquarie won that bid and good luck to them. There's lots of competition amongst different local government areas. Their bid was obviously better than Dubbo's and so be it. Mm. Now, it went to Port Macquarie last year. It was rained out. Too much rain, couldn't play on the field, so they had to cancel the event. It was in Port Macquarie this year, the second year of their contract, rained out, couldn't play. The New South Wales Touch Association basically had a lot of pressure from their member club saying, we don't want to go back to Port Macquarie again. That's because dry. Well, it just the potential for it to be rained out again. Mm. And once it rains there, their fields just can't handle the significant amount of rain. Mm. So they went back out to a few other LGAs and said, is anyone willing to host this? It's only going to be a one-year contract, the third year of that contract. And obviously one of the ones they looked at was Dubbo because mm. we just missed out last time. Mm. So... As it turned out, we put in another updated bid, if you like. Yep. And really, it wasn't about sometimes different councils will just pay money to an organization. Please, if we pay you $100,000, can you come here? And they actually said they had bids from different councils that were just throwing money at them. What we said to them was, we don't want to give you any money. What we want to do is we want to make it easy for you to host the event here in Dubbo. We'll do lots of work behind the scenes. We'll make it all happen for you very easily and take care of lots of things behind the scenes to make it as smooth as possible. Now, as it turned out, Dubbo Touch Association actually said they'll contribute some funds to New South Wales Touch to make it come here. So it's a great contribution from them. Mm. But they awarded it to Dubbo for the third year. So next year in February, we'll have, as I said, about 10,000 people for four days here. So that's a huge event now. Hopefully it doesn't rain. It was that's, that's it. they came out here to make the announcement. We had the CEO of New South Wales Touch here, a gentleman by the name of Dean. He was out here making the announcement, yep. and uh, here we were. It was beautiful, dry fields were playing on them. Probably a week or so after the announcement, the we had stayed rolled in. That's right. Now <laughs> our fields are very good. When yes. it does rain, they do become very dry quick enough that we can still play on them pretty soon after rain. And we've got some other fields like Apex Oval we could play on mm. in an emergency if we had to. So mm. I think we'll still be okay yeah. if it does rain. Now, just a bit of a shout out to Dean as well. He actually had a heart attack the day after he was here. Oh. And interestingly enough, we actually, when we were down there, we had some kids playing touch footy. And I actually said to Dean, and we had a couple of our staff there as well, said, why don't we just 
get a, a football and we'll play a bit of touch footy with these kids that were running around there. So here we were running around with Dean, with myself, with Jane Bassingwaite, with Tracy, with a few of our staff just playing a bit of muck around touch with these kids. Yes. And the next day that I heard that he'd had a heart attack. So I've sent some messages to Dean to, to wish him well on his recovery. Yep. But I hope it wasn't the touch footy we played the <laughs> day before that, that triggered something there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a huge event. But we yeah. also have lots of cricket events here. Now, when yeah. I've talked to cricket, New South Wales cricket in the past, one of the things they love about coming to Dubbo is that we've got lots of turf wickets and they're all close together. So when they come and run some of these junior carnivals, they can have the parents come and park the car in one spot and then they can walk to most of the fields for the rest of the day. So mm. it makes it very convenient for the parents, very convenient for spectators yep. and probably for the kids as well. So that's a great thing. So we typically have, we've just had a carnival, but we typically will have in January, February, another junior cricket tournament as well. So in terms of the sporting aspects, we've got lots of our great local sport that's played, but because we've got such great sporting facilities, we do attract people in. And it's one of those arguments, mm. how much money do you spend on your sporting facilities? Mm. How much money is the right amount of money to spend for your local residents. But then when you start to weigh up what you get externally and the injection into the economy from those external events, yeah. that's a pretty exciting thing as well. Oh, you've got 10,000 people coming into any place. Yeah. That's, that's a massive input of funds, isn't it? It is, yeah, absolutely it, right. Just on that, if I push a little bit further, how um, how do we go in Dubbo in regards to catering for 10,000 people? Would we be able to cater for 10,000 people like that? Well, we don't have enough beds, and that is yeah. a problem for us. And one of the good things about that is that that will benefit some places around us as well. So yes. people will go and stay at Narromine, they'll stay at Wellington, Absolutely. they'll stay at Mudgee, they'll stay at Gilgandra, even Parks. So you'll see some accommodation boosts around there because mm. when they made the announcement they were coming to Dubbo, when I talked to some hoteliers after that, every motel said they were inundated with phone calls and they were wow. all booked out within Bang. hours. Yes. So great for that perspective, but we don't have 10,000 beds in Dubbo in no. terms of motel beds. Yeah. So they've got to go elsewhere, but we'll also look at some other things. We might look at, for example, creating a bit of a tent city at the showground. We might look at some other caravan parks in terms of how they can get extra people in. So we'll try and be a bit creative with other ways that we can accommodate all those people as much as possible in Dubbo. Mm. And then in terms of catering, yes, it'll be great for pubs and clubs and hospitality places, even the supermarkets, the amount of food huh. those parents will buy over those four days for their kids there. So it's yeah. great and a whole Benefits range of aspects. Benefits are huge, aspects. aren't they? They really oh, are. Absolutely right, yeah. So those sort of events are great. Mate, look, I think it's only fitting that today after watching the Irish T20 cricket team absolutely demolish the West <laughs> Indians yesterday in the World Cup, that we uh, we finish our uh, podcast today with one of your world-famous limericks. <laughs> now, I know you love your limericks, Matt. Now, before you actually get into it, uh, for the listeners out there, now, you've been doing this for a little while, and I must admit, I'd like to know... Where did it all start from? What, what This whole idea of the limerick. Tell me about it. Well, it, did, it did you've been doing a few now. <laughs> I've, I've done a few. and I, I love the limerick as a form of poetry. I do like my poetry. I've got to be said yes. that way back in school, there must have been a great teacher I had who had some influence on me and I've been reciting poetry. might have even been my dad. My dad used to do the man from Ironbark because the Dickerson name started here in this region in about 1849 in okay. Ironbark, which is now called Stewarttown, yes. of course. And so my dad used to recite The Man from Iron Bar because that was obviously local to them in terms of that family. So maybe it started with dad, maybe it started with a teacher, but I've, I've mm. done poetry at Steadford since I was a kid. Yes. And one of the things I like about the limerick is it's short and it's sweet, uh, but you've got to really focus hard to get a good limerick because you've only got the five lines mm. to work with. Mm. So mm. years ago when I used to do some segments on Star FM, there were a couple of announcers there, Mitch and Kelsey, and they said they wanted something a bit different for their mayoral segments right. we used to do. Yes. And I actually just jokingly said, oh, look, I love my limericks. How about each time I come along, I'll do a limerick that's pertinent to a topic that week? And they went, oh, 
Okay, sounds good. So I started doing limericks each time I was on with them, which was each yep. week or fortnight, and they started doing a few limericks back in return. And so it became a bit of a thing there for many years. So I do like the idea. So on this podcast, the idea is that each week we'll finish off with a limerick that is pertinent to something that happened during the week. Oh, I like it. So I'll hit you with the one for this week. This week was Dubbo's chance to dream with lanterns under a moonbeam. Dream became a nightmare as rain fell everywhere. It was enough to make you scream. Short and sharp, to the point. I love it. Straight to the point. That's exactly what's happened this week. Well, Matt, I've really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, of course, we'll be back next week with our Merrill Memo podcast. Until next week, everyone, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.